You may know Paul Tuff from his New York Times bestselling book, How Children Succeed, that first introduced readers to the research that shows that character strengths like grit, perseverance, self-control, and optimism play a critical role in children's success. After that book came out, Tuff spent months on the road speaking to teachers, and after each talk, he would often get the same question, okay, now that we know this, what do we do? Tuff's new book hopes to answer that question. Helping Children Succeed is its name. Welcome to the ICAST, Paul Tuff. Thank you, great to be here. So Paul, talk a little bit about what it means to, to go on the road, to share research, and then to get feedback from people who can actually implement that research in the day-to-day -day lives of, of children in schools. So uh, how, how Children Succeed is a book of narrative journalism. So it's, it's a lot of stories. Um, there's a lot of research as well about these non-cognitive skills, um, but a lot of how I, how I conveyed that research was through telling different stories um, of educators who were trying to, to help, help students develop these skills. And so when I would go and talk to, you know, give talks to groups of teachers, I would tell these stories. And that was exactly the question that, that I heard. I mean, they wanted to know practically, what do you do to develop these skills? And, and there is this big gap in the research. There is uh, clear evidence that these so-called non-cognitive skills are very important in children's success. There is not clear, uh, a clear understanding of what teachers do to develop them. And so w what I found was that teachers were, and educators and education officials, were pushing toward this um, paradigm of just trying to teach these skills. I mean, that's what teachers do, right? We know how to teach the Pythagorean theorem. We know how to teach reading. Um, and so let's teach grit and optimism and curiosity in the same way. Let's lecture kids about it. Let's give them worksheets to help them develop those, them. Let's ass assess those skills in the same way. And what the evidence suggested is that that just doesn't work. Um, and so that's what made me want to write this new book, to try to understand, well, if that paradigm doesn't work, what is it that helps develop these skills in kids? I imagine people would say, well, well, Paul, you know, you're the grit expert. How do you teach grit and how do you know it doesn't work? Talk a little bit about what went into the research and what you observed of, of how teaching grit doesn't work. And then if it's not, if you're not able to teach grit, what is it that you're able to affect to change things? Well, I mean, I certainly can't say conclusively that you can't teach grit. Um, and, and in fact, I do think that some of the more uh, you know academic approaches, like like the the uh, character report card that I wrote about in How Children Succeed, I think they might work in sort of a metacognitive way, like getting kids to think about well, what does it mean to persevere. I think that's certainly helpful. But at the same time, the research suggested that that there were certain teachers who were doing things in the classroom that were making uh, their students feel. Um, certain ways, uh, feel more of a sense of belonging, more of a sense of connectedness, more of a sense of purpose, more of a sense of autonomy, and that when that happened, those students would then behave in the, the ways that we wanted them to behave in school. So there was this distinction between whether uh, you are actually changing the, the, the qualities of a kid, making them good at grit in the same way that you can make someone good at math, or whether you were just getting them in that class at that moment to act in certain ways, act more in more perseverant ways. And, and what the research um, uh, found and sort of pushed me toward was that it doesn't really matter which you're doing, right? That what we care about and what we should care about is not the, the, the sort of personality traits, it is the behaviors. Because it does matter if you persevere, it does matter if you're able uh, as a student to bounce back from disappointments and setbacks. When students are able to do that, they do better in school and then they go on to do better in life. And so 
creating a context, creating an environment when, where children are more likely to behave in those ways, that seemed to me to be what was important. So the environmental factors are, are critical. And I think from sort of the narrative storytelling component, I think our listeners would love to hear, kind of give us a little portrait of what that environment looks like. What does a kid suffering with toxic stress or trauma, what is that child's experience in a school setting like? What is that child's experience in a school, in a home setting like? And then what does the teacher then have to do to change? Well, so, so I would say that if we're thinking about how to, how to develop these capacities in children and how to influence their environment in order to make it easier for them to develop these capacities or these tendencies or these habits, that the place to start is in the home and in the earliest years of life. And so in, a, in, in the education world, in, in, you know, I'm here at the Education Writers Conference, um, uh, I'm, I'm guessing in the EdCast as well, like we don't often think about the first few uh, months and years of life as being an important place to intervene if we want kids to do better in the classroom. But this is somewhere where the research is really clear that these uh, tendencies and capacities, these, this, this non-cognitive realm in children, it absolutely has its roots in what happens in the early years of life, especially in the development of our stress response system. Um, that research neuroscientists have, have made great strides over the past um, decade and couple of decades in understanding how those mechanisms work. So the pr first place that we should intervene is in the home, is in supporting uh, parents and especially um, parents who are living in poverty uh, to take certain steps, um, make different connections with their, uh, with their children. Um, so Jack Shankoff at the Harvard uh, Center for the Developing Child has, has has compiled a lot of research showing that what he calls serve and return parenting uh, makes a huge difference in terms of how kids develop the basics of these capacities. So that's one realm. The other realm is in the classroom. So when kids get to school and they don't have a lot of these uh, non-cognitive capacities or tendencies, um, school for them is very stressful. You know, they have these highly um, uh, fired up fight or flight responses. And a lot of how we deal with kids like that is to impose more order, more control on them, um, to create sort of a behaviorist framework where we try to change their behavior through punishments and rewards. And with kids who see everything as a threat, um, who are suspicious and wary, that kind of approach rarely works. And instead, I think when uh, teachers are able to create in their students more of a sense of uh, belonging and autonomy and uh, possibility and the possibility of change, that makes a huge difference in those children's lives. They're much more motivated. They're more motivated to persist. They're more, more motivated to show up in the first place. Um, and so that's not easy, I think, for teachers to do. And there's no clear uh, handbook on what to do. But I think there are things that we can tell teachers about how to change the climate in their classroom, how to change the atmosphere in their classroom um, that makes a, a, a sort of objective, empirical difference in how their students do. You talked about some of those early interventions. I'm curious, uh, with the neuroscience behind it, especially in uh, low-income classrooms, uh, low-income families, talk a little bit about um, how people can gain access to all these interventions. How are they more democratic? How are they more accessible? And then how does that access of those interventions become a matter of policy? How do you shift it from these are great ideas to these are things that are being mandated by state, local, federal government? Well, to talk about the early childhood uh, uh, interventions, you know, the, the, the degree to which they're democratic is complicated because, um, you know, I think one way when, when, when public policy uh, officials come to understand this research about that, that changing the atmosphere in, in homes in early childhood makes a big difference in kids' success, um, our approach is to sort of democratize it. There's information out there that we can give to parents to tell them how to do things differently. That's not a 
bad idea, certainly, but it's also clear from the evidence that it's not enough, that just giving stressed out parents, uh, you know, a pamphlet or a video saying this is how you should raise your kid doesn't tend to change their behavior in significant ways. What they need is uh, sort of face-to-face support. And so the programs that I've found that work the best are home visiting programs. Um, They are sometimes 10 uh, home visits, um, an hour uh, each time. And certainly those home visitors talk about uh, different approaches, different strategies, but what seems to make the biggest difference to those parents is just having somebody take them seriously, tell them that they're a decent parent, um, make them feel connected uh, to, uh, as, so that they can model that in connecting with their, uh, with their kids. And so, um, so your question about how to democratize it is, it's a little bit complicated. It's not just about spreading information. It's about, you know, actually taking some actions to reach out to those parents. Um, and the parents who are most at risk, they're the best investment for us because when we, uh, when as a matter of public policy, we reach out to those parents and connect to them in their homes, it makes a profound difference for how their kids grow up and how they do later on in school. So, so who, who needs to kind of finish listening to this podcast and then go call their congressman or, or their local school board or like what is it what is the action what's the usable takeaway of people who read your book uh read your book helping children succeed who who take away all the neuroscience the early intervention best practices what can they do to move this work forward so that it, it is a more democratic way that that it's not uh, based on income levels uh, is dependent upon how well your children is able to succeed I would say that what I'm trying to do in this book is is to uh, change our thinking about what kids need. Um, I do think that there are some specific policies, some specific practices uh, that we can change right now. You know, right for instance, in early childhood, right now we spend uh, 94% of our early childhood public dollars on. Um, kids age three, four, and five, and six percent on kids uh, from birth to their third birthday. That is out of whack, especially given what we know uh, about uh, the importance of the early years in general, but especially in the development of these non-cognitive capacities. So um, from a public policy point of view, spending more money in those early years, uh, being more um, uh, supportive of families in their homes, I think that's going to make a big difference. But I think the, the, the big shift that has to happen is, is in terms of educators and uh, voters and parents um, rethinking what we mean about how to help kids succeed. And to me, that, the, the, the shift that I'm trying to encourage in this book is away from thinking about these non-cognitive capacities as skills that somehow the responsibility of children to develop and instead as products of kids' environment. And when you start talking about the environment, which I think is, is supported by the science, um, that, that, that the, it's the environment that shapes these capacities in kids, that then puts the, the pressure, the responsibility back on us, which is the, the adults who surround these children and, and create the environment that surround the, surrounds these children. And I think it really is our responsibility to rethink in a, in a big way from birth all the way through the end of high school what it is in the environment of uh, kids, especially kids growing up in poverty, that we can shift to improve their lives. Do you think uh, the role of philanthropy uh, within this whole context and this discussion, is it, is it doing what's needed to be done? We talked a little bit about public policy, but the philanthropic dollars are really moving a lot of this research forward, too. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, philanthropy is playing a huge role. Uh, and so uh, I mean, I'm certainly not critical of what philanthropy is doing because I think so many of the programs that I write about uh, in my book are either entirely phil- philanthropically supported or certainly started that way. Um, but, you know, the, the ideal... Uh, uh, 
the, the ideal uh, approach with with philanthropy is that it starts it, it sort of it's seed money it starts a program it spreads a, a program and then public dollars and public policy takes over and that is happening I think too slowly there are you know I write about uh, a dozen different programs in my book that are still too that, that are really promising uh, that are making great strides that are helping change the environment for kids in early childhood and in the classroom uh, but that are still too small and that are expanding too slowly um, so there's a lot that we can do in terms of shifting away from philanthropy. I don't think that responsibility is on the philanthropists. I think that's on the rest of us. Of, of those dozens of programs, what's the one you're most excited about? What's, what's the one you think is like the next big idea in education? Well, th there are a lot that I think are really important. The two, the two school interventions that I'm most interested in right now are uh, one called Turnaround for Children and another called Expeditionary Learning. And they both take uh, a, a similar approach, which is that they really look at the science of what happens in um, childhood and especially in early childhood to uh, when, when kids are growing up in, in high poverty, high stress um, environments, what that does to kids, and then how that plays out when they get to uh, elementary school and middle school and high school. And so they're taking a um, an approach that does two things. One is it really looks at the psychology of those kids and thinks about what they need and what they need partly is more of a sense of connection, more of a sense of empathy, um, uh, you know, these sort of mushy terms that actually make a big difference in terms of how kids experience school. And that, that the second thing that they need is actually more um, uh, rigor academically. They need harder work. They need more challenge. Um, and that's for two reasons. One is that, that they need to succeed like any children, and so they don't need sort of dumbed-down remedial work, which is often what we give kids who grow up in those sorts of circumstances. Uh, they, need, they need hard work like anybody. But also these two, these two uh, interventions, expeditionary learning and turnaround for children, are discovering that in pushing kids um, in, in, in encouraging them to, you know, try bigger projects, in, in, you know, revising projects over and over again, in uh, working together in groups, doing the sorts of things that are much more common in um, independent schools and in wealthy school districts, that in fact it pushes these kids not just academically but psychologically as well, or in terms of their non-cognitive skills, they're more likely to feel a sense of uh, possibility, a, a growth mindset, the ability, the, the, the belief that they can learn new things, that they can improve their uh, intelligence. All of those things come not from sort of someone telling you that you can improve your intelligence, but in seeing that happen in yourself and saying, well, I, I didn't think that I could give this speech to my classmates. I didn't think that I could create this robot. When kids have the experience of doing that in a classroom, uh, I think it's it's transformative, not just um, cognitively, but non-cognitively. Last, last question, Paul. And thanks again for, for agreeing to be on the EdCast. So during the How Children Succeed book tour, people ask, okay, now that we know this, what do we do? During the Helping Children Succeed book tour, uh, when you go on book talks, uh, what do you expect people are going to ask in terms of a question? And what is it that you expect that will be the driving sort of uh, question and an idea after this book comes out? It's a good question, but that's part of the surprise of <laughs> going on a book tour. I mean, it, re it really is. I'm, 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 uh, I'm fascinated to find out how people respond to this um, the research, and maybe that's going to push me toward my next book. Um, I, my guess is, though, that the same question is going to be there, that really um, what, what I think both policymakers and um, teachers and other practitioners, school leaders want to know is how do we put this research into practice. My hope is that helping children succeed gives them more of a guide and more of a blueprint to what we can do differently. 
Paul Tuff is the New York Times best-selling author, author of the new book, Helping Children Succeed. Go buy this book. Thanks, Paul, for being on the EdCast. Thank you very much. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.